Amen. Thank you, Robbie. Appreciate worship and music that is very, very Christ-centered because that's why we're here, to line ourselves up with Christ Jesus as Lord. Well, good morning. I trust everybody had a blessed Christmas. I know that God was very generous to the Montana household. We enjoyed family and lots of gifts and fellowship and just remembering and worshiping the Lord, reading the Christmas story. And I, Christmas continues to be my favorite time of year, my favorite holiday. I think that was instilled in me as a child. There's just great anticipation to the point where you can hardly stand to stay in the bed when you're a little kid in the morning, knowing that there's presents under the tree. In fact, some mornings I didn't stay in the bed like I was supposed to. I snuck out of the room and looked out on the back porch where we used to keep our tree to see how many gifts were piled under it. Could hardly stand it. So there's great excitement and anticipation built into the Christmas story. And we're going to talk more about the Christmas story. I know the bulletin says different, but you can't believe everything you read. There was a breakdown in communication with the uh, sermon information. But this morning, um, I'm going to turn to Hebrews chapter 2 in a second part of our series in the, on the incarnation of Christ, God with us. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2. And the three, the three points that are not in your bulletin, if you wanted to write them down or jot them down, and I'll try to reiterate these as we move on. But what I want to find in the incarnation this morning in our passage is to turn to him, to turn into him, or that is to become like him in his likeness. And then lastly, to turn your ear to the distant hope. I think we find all three of these things wrapped up in the story and the reality of the incarnation. But before I jump into that, I just want to say next week I intend to share some scriptures with you to bring in the new year. I believe God has laid a few things on my heart uh, that will be used to serve us and direct us as a body for 2016. So I hope that you all can make it for next Sunday as I share some scriptures with you. But in part one of this series on the incarnation, we just simply looked at what Emmanuel means. And scripture says that you shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, and then in Matthew, scripture even defines what that name means, God with us. And so last week we looked at the God part of the incarnation, that is that Jesus is God. Literally, 100% deity, 100% man. It is God wrapped in flesh here on the earth. Then we looked at the term with, and he's not just God that, that stays separate and holy other, but a God that wants to be with us. It's a relational term. So the incarnation means relationship. God wants to do in the form of Christ, wants to do life with us, to be with us, to teach us, to serve us, to love us. And then we looked at the us part. Of this definition and broken into three categories. Who were the us when Christ came in the earth? And and they were, first of all, people who hated or didn't believe in Jesus and put him on their hit list, wanted to get rid of him because he can't be God. And then there were people who acknowledged, perhaps acknowledged, yeah, he might be a king. He might be Lord, but I like to be king of my kingdom. And so they would avoid him. And then the last category of the us were the people that just bowed 
and worshipped him and adored him and acknowledged him for who he really was. So that is the first part and the meaning of God with us. And Christmas is that big event that basically says God has not abandoned us. When you think about Christ in the manger, it's a promise. It's a fulfillment that God has not abandoned us. He still cares for us. He has returned in person as a lowly peasant to establish his kingdom that will be consummated in the days to come. Christ will finish, and we've been reminded of that even in the songs that we sang this morning in worship. Christ will finish what he started by coming to this earth as a little child. So what I want to do this morning is just maybe zoom in a little closer to applying this idea of the incarnation. What might that mean for us today as we live our lives in the culture that we live in, as we do church as brothers and sisters in Christ and pilgrim through? I want to present it in two ways and then close with it. With the idea of, again, the incredible hope that Christmas brings, turning our ears to that. But the two ways I want to apply the incarnation uh, this morning is that the incarnation allows us to turn to him. In fact, we are invited to turn to him. And I hope that what God will speak through this message this morning is that as his people, that we will just be in the habit of turning to him with all the things that we are asked to carry through this life. With all the tasks that we have. Just get in the habit of turning to him. Because he invites us to do that. We'll see in Hebrews. And then secondly. To turn in to him. Meaning to to conform to his likeness. To take on the character of Christ. And we are also exhorted in scripture. To do that. So that's the two ways we're going to zero in on and apply this morning. I want to read Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 14 through 18. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, speaking of Christ, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Did you catch that in verse 18? The idea of turning to him, an invitation to turn to him. And it's there because because he was also he also suffered when he was in the flesh. He suffered the sufferings that humanity experiences. And because he did that, he is able to help those who are being tempted, being tempted to do what? Quit. Being tempted to lose hope, being tempted to compromise Being tempted to not live like a Christian, to lose the faith, to try to hold on to parts of our hearts that we need to be giving over to Christ. All of these things that we face every day of our lives, he is able to help. It's an invitation for us to take all of our anxieties and all of our worries 
and turn to him. And of course, in verse 16 as well. It's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. That's us. That's the true children of God that have gained their righteousness through faith. So we see that invitation to help. We can turn to him for help because he is there for us to turn to. So it's an encouragement. It's encouragement for us. Now, if you don't have any problems, no pain, no suffering, no anxieties, no worries, not a care in the world, then this verse may not minister to you. But this is an encouragement for us to take our pain, to take the frustrations, to take the complexities, to take the, the anxieties, to take our burdens and hurts and our unfulfilled dreams. All of these things to him. Why? Because he will know exactly what we're talking about. Whether we cry it out, whether we whine it out, whether we maintain self-control and just speak it very humbly and respectfully. When we beg it, all of these things, he will know exactly what we are talking about because he understands, because he gets it. Because in one form or another, he has experienced the very same thing. So based on the fact that he became flesh and experienced the very same thing, there's an invitation for us to turn to him. Now, you're not going to hear that invitation in the world. There's an invitation in the world to turn to everything but Christ. But when you read scripture, he says, come to me, turn to me. I'll get messy with you. I'll hear you out. I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, it's different when when you know when you're speaking to somebody and sharing something with somebody and you know they're with you by experience you know they've been there they've done that they they're feeling what you feel you it, it causes you to open up more you trust that person they're more sympathetic they console you he's been on our battlefield he's wielded the sword that we have to wield he's been in the war and so we know the in our incarnate Christ as someone that we can relate to. So these words of consolation from Christ bear weight. So I want to take a few minutes to just break that down and, and maybe answer some questions. Well, what exactly does that mean? What exactly can he relate to? We'll cover everything, but just a few things. What does he know? What's he been through? Well, how about just for beginners, poverty. Poverty. Christ came into the world very humble means. He comes into the world in a manger. This is a place I would venture to say that none of us were born. Maybe in a car on the way to the hospital. But most of us surrounded by professionals. Maybe surrounded by family. Surrounded by everything there waiting to keep you safe. He comes Lowly and is born while in transit in a manger. And he's born into a family with very little means. As a matter of fact, when Mary and Joseph, by law, were to take him to dedicate him as their firstborn to the temple, they had to give the dedication offering that the poor people give. And that was just a bird. God made concessions for those that didn't even have enough money to bring in any kind of animal sacrifice. That's all they could offer. 
They were a people of very little means. So what this means is that Jesus knows what it's like to have to live with limited finances, with limited resources. That's the kind of family he grew up in. So he might know what it means or what it feels like to be that kid who didn't get all those wonderful latest Christmas gadgets as a gift. Maybe to be the kid that just gets the little necessities, the things that you have to have in life. He knows what it's like perhaps to be the carpenter that pulls the old mule instead of the diesel, turbo diesel utility truck, four by four. He he knows what it's like to be limited because he has experienced poverty, which means he knows the looks of perhaps social stigma. You know, the looks that you get when you're not up to par with the rest of culture or that little community. How could you wear that or you don't even have these things? He knows what all that is about. He understands that what it means to maybe not make the cut of certain social classes. So we can turn to him in our poverty. Another area would be shame. Can we take our shame that we feel? Even that, how can the Son of God know shame? Well, Jesus knows shame. He was basically born into shame. Once again, think about his parents. His mom, Mary, faced the shame. By the way, um, Jesus is born in a shame and honor society. That's what it was all about, shame and honor. And, And here's his mom who is pregnant out of wedlock. In a shame and honor society. And you know, just like we do today, people can do the math. We know how long nine months is. And people realize in her little community that it wasn't lining up. The figures weren't lining up. Which means either she, of course, their conclusion had to be either she slept with Joseph before she got married. Or even worse, she just slept slept with somebody else. And so she had to live with that kind of shame. And then you also have Joseph. People would do the math with him and think, Joseph, you're married to this woman. You're having this baby before you got married. Either you soiled her or you married a woman that has already been soiled. And so to follow God and to obey God, they had to give up their shiny, pristine reputations. And these were people of God that that took great pride in their righteousness in the good kind of way. Not as as uh, works righteousness, but just to want to honor God, to want to conform their lives in that way, to honor the Lord and be obedient. And what did they get for it, for their obedience? Shame. God knows shame. Christ knows shame. Not to mention the shame and the humiliation that God the Son faced just going to the cross. Being mocked. So we can turn to him in our times of shame. How about sickness? Not a Sunday goes by where we're not reminded of somebody's sickness. We're surrounded in it. We live in a world. Can Jesus relate? Can he really relate to us when we come to him and ask for healing? And we come with our pain? Well, Scripture doesn't tell us about any particular ailments or disease that Jesus had. Now, he was human. He did bleed. 
He did feel pain. He hurt when he received the whippings. And when the thorn stuck in his head, blood came out. He, he moaned. He groaned. He grieved. He cried. He understood these things. He felt those things. He experienced it in some form. So he knows what it's like for his body to hurt. He knows what it's like to be broken. He knows what it's like to not, for his body to not be able to do what it should be able to do or what he wants it to do. He knows what it's like just to not feel well. But even above that, like those that might have a debilitating disease or even a terminal disease, those who have been given word, Jesus lived every day of his life knowing that there was an end to it. There's a sense like some of us are given basically a death sentence. You have this much, this many more months to live. That's what Jesus knew. He had this many more months to live. This many more years, days. He, he faced life knowing that that day would come when he would suffer and die. So he knows what it's like to, to live under that weight, to live under that cloud. And we can turn to him for our pain. And how about betrayal? Does he know about the insecurities of betrayal, the insecurities of broken relationships that we need so, so much to even properly develop as human beings? We're so dependent upon society and social relationships because that's how God created us based on the Holy Trinity. Well, he gave himself. He knows betrayal. He gave himself willingly. He gave himself truthfully. He was a loyal friend. He was a teacher. He, he invested many, many hours in giving to others. And he was betrayed both by those outside his circle, just his own people, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, who denied him as God and put him on their hit list. But he was also betrayed within the inner circle where it really, really hurts the human heart to have those that you, you know our friends and you've invested in. And you think about the kiss of betrayal, of course, which would be Judas. But then even good old faithful, impulsive Peter, who said, I will never deny you. And I'm sure he meant it at the time. Got put in the pressure cooker, faced a little trouble, and denies him. So he knows what it's like to need somebody to be there for you. Like at the garden when he said, can you not tarry one hour? I'm facing my death. Don't you understand the magnitude of what's happening here? I need your prayers. I need you to partner with me. And they're sleeping. He knows what that's like to need somebody to be there and they're not. And they bail. How about rejection? Well, Scripture tells us he was rejected and despised. Have you ever been... Despisal is like a new level of rejection. It's one thing just to be maybe shunned or rejected or, or ignored, but to be despised, that's when someone just beams those, those glary eyes at you with judgmental thoughts and feelings. Just doesn't even want to be in your presence. And he was rejected and despised for what? Doing nothing but good and speaking nothing but truth. Falsely accused, though he was innocent. There's few things worse than being falsely accused. I used to hate being falsely accused because I did a lot of things wrong and deserved to be accused for them. I did enough of that. So when somebody blamed me for doing something I didn't do, I really got upset. He lived with all of that. 
Sometimes we're called to live with that kind of rejection too. You ever been rejected, say, by your own family, your classmates, your team, your co-workers, your friends, whatever, because you are living the life of faith? They don't understand it. Why would you make that kind of decision? Why would you do that with your money? Why would you raise your kids this way? Why would you not want to join this sports team or hang out with these kind of people? And the more decisions we make to step obediently into the faith, the weirder we look. And many times, the more often we are rejected. Jesus basically says, come to me and I'll be your honor. That's what honor is. I can identify with that. I'll be your honor. How about this one? Being turned down by God. Have you ever felt like you were turned down by God? Even as a believer? Does he know that empty feeling? That lonely feeling? Does he know what it's like for God, or at least to feel like God is not there for you? Well, think about the Garden of Gethsemane again. What's he doing? He's praying. He, he sees where the plan culminates at the cross to, to accomplish redemption. And here's Jesus, the Son of God, incarnate, praying, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, remove this cup from me. Seeing his weakness, feeling perhaps the hopelessness, Of what he is facing. Father if there is any. Other way. I want plan B. And what's the answer. There is no plan B. The the very things that you. Want to avoid. The very anxieties that you are feeling. Because you know how painful it's going to be. To take these steps. That's it. That is the plan. Stay focused. And proceed. There's no rescue. There's no escape. Has that ever happened to you? You're facing something terribly difficult in your life and you're pretty sure you know. And you're telling God, I can't do this. There's no way in the world I can make it through another day. You know, you know your own frailty of the flesh and weakness of mind. You know what you've been through. Maybe you've gone way farther than others and kept the faith and been strong and upbeat. But it's just... It's just closing in on you now and it's too much. And you go to God and you know, I can't do this. I just can't. And you're pretty sure God knows you can't do it. And you're looking for that escape. You're looking for the healing. You need some hope. You need a beam of sunshine, which I was grateful for this morning. We actually had a little sunshine this morning. And you're crying out to God. And the answer is not what we're praying for. The answer is, this is my plan for you. Walk it. You can do it. It feels like God is not there for us. And Christ knows. What did he pray on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Christ experienced that separation of that relationship. Something new to him he'd never experienced before. The warmth and the presence of God withdrawn from him. Forsaken. That grueling pain. I've shared with you that um, a few times that this 2015 has been my most difficult year in my Christian walk. In that, 
Usually when I had a year of misery, when I first became a Christian and I did this up and down, and when I'd sink in a life of sin, obviously it was absolutely miserable and I'd cry out for deliverance and I would repent and God would scoop me back up as he does so well and love on me and set me back on the path and say, there's hope, let's do this again. But this year was just different. And it wasn't, I, I didn't have this big sin to repent of like I could have in the past to, to restore myself. I tried everything I knew within my power to restore myself with God, but I'll speak more about it as the year goes on. But basically, one of the, the most painful things for me this year was that the felt presence of God wasn't there for me. And I know theologically, and I'm even preaching on God is with us. I know he's omnipresent. How can God not be there in our lives, no matter what we go through? But what I lacked was just that confirmation, the inspiration, the affirmation that I am with you. And it's that relationship aspect of it. It's, it's subjective. You know, it's experiential. And I'm, I'm crying out to God as a pastor, Lord, I, I need to be fed by you. My job is to shepherd these people. And I got nothing, nothing. It was shameful. It was embarrassing. I felt like I couldn't do my job. I'm waiting on God. And I didn't handle it well at all. I didn't abandon the faith, obviously. I pressed on. But there's a lot of things I'm learning now as God is revealing to me. By the way, I'm doing better. Thank you so much for your prayers. Uh, just in the last probably three weeks, there's no explanation for it other than the sovereignty of God. Apparently, thankfully, hopefully, God is saying, I'm bringing you out of that season. By all indications, that's true. Uh, it's just amazing. But I turned to God and it just seemed like he wasn't there. What do you do with that as a Christian? And he didn't forsake me. He just had something for me that I wasn't getting. It's a, it's a low, low place to be. And Christ knows about those things. Even those things, even those feelings like God isn't there for you. How can the Son of God experience that? How could he possibly know what I'm talking about when I come to him with that kind of pain? He does. It's amazing. So, whatever we've gone through, whatever we're going to go through, we just want to... to Understand this morning that Christ has been there. Therefore, turn to him. He can speak to us in truth and console us. He's been on our battlefield and there's the invitation. He gets it. He understands. So the Christmas message, part of it is you can turn to him. And he will help you. And console you. Because he's plunged himself into our world. Into our Humanity and we can trust what he says. And then secondly, turning into him, which is probably better said into his likeness. And we are encouraged by scripture to conform to the image of Christ. So the Christian life, our goal is not only to turn to him, but to turn into him. That is to to take on his character, to make our character as close to his as possible. That's our paradigm. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is our spirit. So what is God about in our lives? Part of sanctification is transforming us. He has an idea of what he wants our lives 
and our character to look like. And that's what he's busy doing. We all have jobs and we want to be successful with those. God, through his spirit, is perpetually, constantly at work in us. And if there's areas in our lives that don't look like Christ, haven't been transformed or we're refusing, God's going to hit those areas. How can we behold the glory of the Lord like he says? Beholding the glory of the Lord with unveiled face. And I talked a little bit about this last time. You think about in order for Moses to be in the presence of God, he had to veil himself or die. That's pretty much your options in the Old Testament. Either cover yourself up because God's too much or die. And so Moses, of course, covered himself up and then he had to wear the veil because it's just too much for man to behold. And yet. Not so with Jesus, because when he came to earth, he didn't empty himself of his deity, but he emptied himself of his glory. The the luxuries, the extravagances of his heavenly abode, the things that were rightfully his. He laid those aside. Uh, You might put it as he emptied himself of his glamour. And he became very, very ordinary. And we are to become like him. What does that look like? It's what the Bible calls lowliness. Uh, J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, a book I highly recommend if you don't own it or haven't read it. He has a chapter on the incarnation and he says, the incarnation means God laying aside his glory and acceptance of hardship, isolation, ill treatment, malice and misunderstanding and finally death. So the Christmas spirit means reproducing in human lives the temper of him who for our sakes became poor. It doesn't shine out in the snob or the person who aspires to higher social standing. The Christmas spirit is rather that of those who, like their master, live their lives on the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent to do good to others And not just for their own friends. Boy, is that a countercultural statement. Because we are so into ourselves. Life is just all about us. That's what we're trained by our culture. And our own flesh feeds right on into it. And the incarnation is the exact opposite of the tendencies of the flesh. It's this lowliness. Who wants to become low? Who grows up saying, we grow up saying, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be this or that. Who has the mindset, I want to be lowly so that I can just help others and relate to others. And yet we are being transformed. You see what God's up against? We are being transformed in this. When sharing this with, with Lisa, she said, that reminds me of a scripture I just read. And she looked it up real quick in her Bible. It was Romans twelve sixteen. The Apostle Paul saying to the New Testament saints, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never remember seeing that in there for some reason. Associate with the lowly. Right in Scripture. Never be wise in your own sight. The social superiority is a reflection of the image of God. Not of Christ. Haughtiness, showing off, it gets us the attention. Sure, it does. It works. We've all been there and done that. Showing off and... Doing whatever we can to be in the spotlight. Acting like we're God's gift to the world. It'll get the world's attention. 
But Scripture would lead us to believe it doesn't get God's attention because what gets God's attention is the, the lowly spirit, the heart that's contrite, the heart that's broken, that stays down there and doesn't allow itself to be prideful. Isn't it amazing that God, you cannot get any greater than God. I mean, it's just not even possible, conceivable. And yet in all of his greatness, there is not a speck of pride or arrogance. That's the kind of God that we will spend eternity with. And what a joy that will be. So to be like Jesus, we have to be willing to walk with the people that don't have the power. Walk with the people that don't have the connections. Walk to the, with the people that can't get us places. Which is exactly opposite than what we are taught. And then there's another area that we are encouraged to transform into the image of Christ. And that's the area of what I'll just call costly involvement. So... Are we lowly? Do we have this kind of attitude that Christ had as he walked upon this earth? Because that's what God wants for us. And are we involved? Even if it costs. So the incarnation means that God came down from the beauties of heaven. And he takes on, he takes off his kingly clothes and he puts on his work clothes. He puts on his serving clothes. And he got involved with the messiest Filthiest people and places in the world. I remember as a kid, and I'm, I, I didn't take the time to look it up because <clears throat> I just didn't take the time to look it up. But anyway, on the internet for a variety of reasons. But I just remember as a kid, and I'm probably going to blotch the story up, but it's still going to be significant. Because I think I'm remembering, I don't know that I'm remembering it correctly, and I may be reading something into it. But anyway, some of you will probably remember what I'm talking about. It was late 60s, early 70s. I was just a kid. And I remember watching something on the news that really scared me. as It just disrupted my spirit as a kid. And it was a story about a mugging that happened in New York City. And I can't remember if I read it in the paper or I watched it on the news, but, but it was so vivid that I was seeing it in my mind. So I can't remember if, if it's just in here or there. But anyway, it was this lady that was being mugged in New York City. And, uh, and she was being stabbed, mugged and stabbed and robbed and beaten. And she was screaming out in the streets and crying out for help. And the help never came. Uh, and the story... The big news wasn't that another person got mugged in New York City. That wasn't so uncommon. The big headlines about this was that nobody helped. Nobody involved themselves. People watched from their, they were interviewed later, and they watched from their apartment windows. They heard the screams, and they watched this poor lady being mugged, and they just watched. They did nothing. And perhaps the people on the streets that were close by, they just kind of backed up and watched. There was no involvement, and... Afterwards, they were interviewed and um, they would say that I didn't want to get involved. So that was the big news that someone could actually be murdered in the streets and nobody do anything about it just because they didn't want to get involved. They didn't want to get messy. If I remember right, I'm not so sure they even bothered to call the police right away. It's just like. Whatever. But you know, it's true. 
It's absolutely true. If we are going to involve ourselves in people's lives, it's going to be dangerous. It's going to be risky. It's going to be messy. And it's going to take a lot of courage to do this. Because it means venturing out of our little zones of safety. Coming out of our safe apartments. Getting out of our safe cars. Getting out of our safe circle of friends. Whatever it is. The things that we build up around ourselves. Sometimes we need to get out of those. And take the risk like Christ did for us. And help the cries of the poor. And the downtrodden. And when we help the vulnerable. We become vulnerable. But God hears the cries of his people. The Bible tells us that God hears our cries and and didn't just call it in. But hears our cries and Christmas means that he came down and he became vulnerable to help us in our messiness. Keller says, Timothy Keller says, Jesus Christ didn't come down just at the risk of his life. He came down at the cost of his life. He wasn't afraid to become a human being to make himself one with us. That made him vulnerable. That even made him killable. And he was. You know, we have been, we've become a culture that really doesn't want to get involved. Just be honest, I'm that way, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Really don't want to get involved in these kind of things. We have our own personal gadgets that help us be connected with the people we want to be connected with and and disconnect with the people that we won't don't want to associate with. And in our minds, we have everything we need and we, we don't want to lose that. We absolutely love our personal freedoms and we don't like to be bothered with anything or threatened with anything that might tie us down or make us vulnerable to just coming and going whenever we please, just doing the things that we like. We don't want to be robbed of this. We don't want to be hurt and dragged down. We are afraid of commitments. We don't like those kind of things. And it's played out, say, like in church. You have people that they don't they might attend church, but they don't want to be absolutely convinced, um, committed and invest their lives and invest their finances in it because it makes them too vulnerable. You got too much there. And what happens if you know something happens and it gets messy? Then I can't get out. I've got too much invested. It happens in our marriages as well. People live together and they have children and they love each other, but not enough to make it legal and, and make it a, a covenant marriage and put a certificate behind it. I love you this much, but not quite that much because I want a way out. I don't want to be that vulnerable to you. I don't want to be stuck with something and invest myself. I like my freedom. And when it gets messy, I want to bail. And it does get messy and it, it, it does make us vulnerable. And there's no way to have these kind of close relationships there's no way sometimes to do good and help people without getting messy and vulnerable and even taking risks coming down as christ does means these things and sometimes it means a season of only giving and not getting a single thing in return so why do it because jesus did and we are to be like him He gets involved with the people that cry, the people that are needy, the people that are bleeding physically, psychologically, spiritually. He doesn't just sit and politely listen and nod his head. He gets down and dirty. He goes down where we need him to be. As low as we can be, Christ will be there for us. And he puts himself in harm's way. 
He puts himself behind the whip. He puts himself behind the spear. He puts himself behind the nails. He puts himself behind that cloud of separation and gets involved. And so should we. That's part of the Christmas message. And then lastly, we won't spend a lot of time on this, but the incarnation is our present and distant hope. And so it's an encouragement. I think Christmas encourages us to put our ear to the distant sound of the consummation of the kingdom that he hasn't abandoned us and he will come again. Because what we have here, though, the incarnate Christ has made the world a much better place. I know I'm a much better person with Christ in my life, and I know you are too. The world is a much better place. It's not good enough. The work is not finished. It's not complete. And Christ will come back to complete that. We see in Hebrews, again, chapter 2, verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But at present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's the state or the, the place on the map of redemption that we live in. This is us. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. And we feel the pain of that. Not everything is under the lordship of Christ. It's a done deal legally, but he is still bringing it into its process, to its finality. And so in the meantime, we suffer through a world that still has a curse on it, though it's being removed. We still face these kind of hardships as our present reality, which means we can grow weary in this. Because we still have to fight the sin and the evil. And in a sense, sometimes, as C.S. Lewis would say, it feels maybe like always winter, but never Christmas. And we need to know as we think about the Christmas story that he came and he is coming back. And then all things will be in subjection to him. And we can't expect what's reserved for heaven to come to us in this world, in this earth. So Christmas reminds us that, in essence, reinforcements are on the way. So the Christian life, we should always have an ear for the reinforcements that they're coming. We don't know exactly when. But we know they're on their way. And I'll close with this illustration. Uh, one of my favorite series was Lord of the Rings. Didn't read it till I was an adult. And didn't really learn how to read till I was an adult. But I didn't like, I didn't like reading books. <clears throat> I read all my kids' books when I was an adult. For the most part, I read a few as a kid. Some good Westerners. But anyway, it's got nothing to do with this message. So we're talking about the two towers... The Lord of the Rings. And it's the battle of Helm's Deep. And King Theoden, Theoden was weak because he'd been under this curse and this spell. But he snapped out of it. But the enemy is on the way. And they know those orcs and Yurikai and all different kind of creatures. They are way outnumbered. And so the people are feeling pretty weak and hopeless. And they're wondering, is it going to hold? Can I hold up? Can the walls hold up? And sensing this hopelessness before the battle the wizard Gandalf turns to Aragorn, one of their leaders, and says, Look to my coming at first light. On the fifth day at dawn, look to the east. And then they get into the battle. Shortly after that, they hear the drums of the enemy. They get closer and closer. Then you can, feel, you can hear the marching of the enemy. When that many feet pound the earth, you actually can feel the ground 
shake just like when horses stampede or run by. So it's, it's really unnerving, but they do the best they can. They take up the battle. They're swinging their swords and doing all kinds of things, and they rally the best they can. Um, and they're losing more and more ground. They're having to go deeper and deeper into the hole. They're losing more and more men. It's looking rather hopeless. And then it happens. When they perhaps thought that all was lost, the dawn of light comes. And there's the wizard. There's Gandalf. And he's got all kinds of reinforcements. And if you've seen the movie, they rush down the hill. And those that were already in the battle that are thinking, I can't swing my sword one more time, they're just... Inspired, they're invigorated because there are others there, reinforcements to help them fight. And as Christians, we want to live the Christian life realizing we're not alone, that reinforcements are on the way. That's the message of Christmas. Therefore, we won't grow weary to the point where we quit, to the point where we compromise, to the point where we give up. So by faith, we have to hear the marching. We have to hear by faith the the distant drumbeat. And the carols, all the Christmas carols we sing that have so much hope of the returning king who will come back because things aren't quite good enough and he will set everything right and rid the world of all of its evil and its suffering and all the bad will be reversed and replaced with joy when everything and not just a few things are under the subjection of Christ. And so that is the Christian, part of the Christmas message and the meaning of the incarnation. We want to be a people that are in a habit. Let's turn to him. Let's take our stuff to him. It's safe with him. He understands. And together become more and more like him, conforming our character. And then all the time not growing weary because we can just hear the drumbeat in the distance. May God tune our ears to that. May he bless his word. Oh, God is with us. And uh, once again, Merry Christmas. Enjoy your gifts. Amen.